as we begin with an introduction to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses this morning, and if you're helped by notes, you'll find those in your bulletin, and you can follow along as we go through this passage together. But I'd like to read it before we do anything else, and then commit it to prayer. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we commit this time to you this morning, and these words are powerful. They're moving. And God, their truth, we come to you this morning humbly, realizing that we're carrying in our hands and hearing and reading your very words, the very words of God. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. And Holy Spirit, I surrender myself afresh to you. I know that I could preach a sermon that would have all the right points and miss the mark. I'm an empty vessel. I have nothing to offer except the word of God and your power as you fill me. So I'm asking that you would fill me that your word might go out and that it might not return void and that it might accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it this morning. And that each heart here would be responding even now with a resounding yes to your word, wanting to be more like you, wanting to, to understand the mystery of the coming of the ages and that we might prepare ourselves to be a holy people, a kingdom and priests for your glory and your service. So have your way this morning. Magnify yourself and draw men and women, all of us, into a deeper and closer and more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. People have a fascination with the future. I think some people even would go beyond a fascination. It's almost an obsession. And we all experience it, even if you may not be obsessed with the future, we still are privy to it because... For instance, at the end of every year, just about the time that the new year rolls around, we hear all these predictions by all these so-called prophets who are going to tell us the future. And some of them are wild and some of them are somewhat predictable. Most of them are extremely vague. Anybody ever read the horoscope in the newspaper? Oh, no, of course, none of you ever do that. <laughs> Occasionally, even though I know it's complete malarkey, I just look at it to say, oh my gosh, this is so vague and pointless and stupid. It could be anybody, any month, any time just to get a little bit of a laugh. 
But I do. I sometimes I'll look at it just for fun and I'll say, this is so, so, these people are so lost. And yet, many people pour over the horoscope and they spend their life looking into the future, attempting to. You see, we're, we're limited. We're time-bound as people. We know the past and we know what we're experiencing right now, but we are absolutely clueless about the future. We know very little about it. And people are so desperate to know what the future holds that they will sell themselves to find out what the future holds. We have psychic hotlines. Now we've got internet psychic hotlines. We've got hotlines everywhere. You can call a, a psychic any time of the day, 24 hours a day. You just have to clock in your $2.99 a minute. I don't know what that adds up to. It's pretty expensive though. And uh, by the time you're done, you know, they string you along and string you along until you've laid out like 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And then, you know, it's just titillating just to keep you on the line to grab your money from you. Now, why would someone do that? Why would somebody give their money to a fraud, a fake, a charlatan? Well, it's because something deep in us longs to know what the future holds. We want to know what's ahead, not only for our life, but for the life of this world. Most of these predictions, like I said, are, are so vague and so innocuous that it could be completely true or, or not completely true. Many of the predictions, how many of you ever, ever heard the predictions before the new year and then the follow-up next year about what that profit, that so-called profit, what their percentage rate was? We never hear it, do we? Because none of it happens. Or it's so predictable, everybody knows it's going to happen. And so there's very little hope in looking to man for what the future holds. In fact, someone has said that prediction is a very difficult art, especially when it involves the future. <laughs> now, in contrast to these prophetic frauds in the world, there is a predictive source that we have that's 100% sure, and it's the Word of God. More than a fourth of, Bible, of the entire Bible is predictive prophecy, meaning it's prophetic both the Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to this theme of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. That means one out of every 30 verses talk about the Lord's return. In the 23 books of the New Testament, 27 refer to this great event. And for every prophecy about the first coming, about the, the virgin birth, for every prophecy about his first coming, there are eight about his second coming. You see, God is very interested in you knowing what the future holds. He knows that you care about it. He knows that you are blind from a human perspective and don't have the capacity to see in the future as he is able to do. And in his wisdom and in his mercy and in his love for you, he wants to unveil and reveal and disclose himself to you. And so through scripture, he makes it possible for us to know what the future holds. Now, does that mean that you're going to know through reading the scripture who that someone special is in your life who's going to come in the next few weeks and, and bounce into your life and you're going to marry that person? Well, probably not. Are you going to find out when you're going to get your next promotion and when your boss is finally going to appreciate all that hard work you've been doing all these years? Well, probably not. You see, these things are very temporal. It's not that God doesn't care about them, but, but the things on God's heart are so far above and beyond and so much more precious and powerful and lasting that He is not concerned in revealing that to us in the book of Revelation. What He wants you to know is He wants you to know the end of all things. 
He wants you to know the glory that's coming for himself. He wants you to know his victorious power over Satan and his legions and over the world and the corruption in the world. He wants you to know the victory that you have waiting for you in eternity. He wants you to know the promises of an inheritance with him that will last forever and ever and ever, never to end, that you will rule and reign with him. You are a precious people, chosen and loved by God. And you have a destiny. There's a little quote that I shared with the guys, and I'm, it's kind of off the cuff, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but it goes something like this, that life is too short to live little. Life is too short to be small in this life. Life is too important to be small. And you are a precious people, chosen by God, not just that your life would go nicely here, but chosen for an eternal destiny. Don't live a small life. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's, about. it's a clarion call for us as the body of Christ to realize that we have a destiny that is bound up in Christ and will go on for all eternity. And so John shares with us the book of Revelation. The word revelation itself means apocalypsis. It's actually a Greek word. And it means the disclosure or unveiling of Jesus Christ. God is taking the wraps off of the future and what the future holds. It was recorded by the Apostle John approximately 60 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He received this vision while he was banished for his faith on the island of Patmos. It was a very small island. Some of us, uh, especially people that move from the mainland and come over here, they get rock fever. But John really had rock fever. I mean, his island was only four miles by eight miles. And it was a small place. And it was barren. And it was a miserable place to be. But it was on that island that God revealed to his beloved disciple this vision, this great vision that gives the church and gives us hope for the future. And so in the introduction, if you're following in the notes, we see the first verse that says that the author is really the Father because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it says which God gave to him, referring to Christ, to show his servants. Now his servants, that's not John, this is plural. He's saying to show his servants, all those who would ever follow Christ, all those who would ever bow the knee to Jesus and would not live as kings in their own world and add Christ to their life, but who would submit themselves to the Lordship once and for all to the power and majesty and authority of Jesus Christ. And so God initiates, again, I've shared this so many times, but God is always the initiator. He is always the one that's seeking you out. He's the one that's, that's pursuing you with his love and wants you to be drawn into a deeper and more intimate relationship with him day by day. And the book of Revelation is no different. God initiates, gives this revelation to Jesus Christ and it's shown to his servants. And what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this revelation? Well, it says, so that we may know what must soon take place. This word show means to reveal means to open up, to manifest, that we might understand and know what's coming. Now this word soon can mean two different things in the Greek. On the one hand, it can mean immediately, like you know, in just a little while, like in a few days. But the other meaning has to do with imminency. In other words, it could happen at any moment. We don't know when it would be. It might be a year from now. It might be tomorrow. It might be ten years from now. But it's imminent. It's right at the doorstep. These things are going to unfold. John tells us in the book of John, chapter 14, 
that even a believer today can receive a manifestation of Jesus Christ, a deeper understanding of the Lord. Did you know that? Did you know that the Bible says that God and Jesus want to show themselves to you? Let me read John 14:21 for you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. You see, even for the believer, even apart from the book of Revelation, Jesus wants to show himself to you. But the condition he places on that is that you are an obedient Christian, a man or a woman who's walking according to the scripture, a man or a woman who's fully surrendered, no holds barred, nothing held back, no little bits of your life that, or sin that you're hanging on to and, and continuing to live in. But he says, if you will love me, if you will obey my commands, and that's the purest demonstration according to God's word of a genuine love for God. It's not how you're feeling inside, it's how you're living. If you're loving God, Jesus says that he will show himself, reveal himself, manifest himself in a deeper and more intimate way in your life. And so these things are going to take place soon. This last couple of weeks has been pretty challenging in a, in a lot of ways, not just for me, but for quite a few other people. I, I lost a classmate. I just had my 20-year reunion, class reunion. I'm so old I can't even remember how to say it. So we had this 20-year reunion, and I hadn't been back to see any of my classmates in all those years. And we got together, and we'd lost, I think, about 15 or 16 classmates already. Some of them died from uh, drownings. Some uh, died from drug overdose. We had a few guys that had died from AIDS. We had some, uh, some abductions, people just disappearing, a sailboat that was in the Marquesas. Just bizarre, weird things. And I, they invited me, I, not because I, uh, for any particular reason, I'm the only pastor among the group, and so they invited me to come and speak and to share a memorial service at our 20-year reunion. And I did. And I warned them and I said, for, for goodness sakes, look at the handwriting on the wall. Life is short. Life is so brief. It's like a vapor and it's gone. And these classmates that, we, that we've known and, and loved are gone and we'll never see them again in, in, unless they know the Lord. And so I was able to share the gospel with that, my classmates and they know me. They, knew, they know me before I was a Christian and they knew me after I was a Christian so they saw the transformation of what God can do. And they responded. But I lost another classmate just a couple of weeks ago. It's actually a week ago. Mark Tuine. Some of you may have read about him in the newspaper. He was, uh, he was a classmate of mine at Punahou and, uh, and he died of a drug overdose. And I, you know, I just thought how short life is how very brief it is and how important it is that we not waste time because the Lord is coming soon. And even if we miss His coming in the sense that we're, we're dead and gone before his, his rapture of the church and His second coming, the fact is, is that our lives are so brief. I live daily with the knowledge that I could be gone tomorrow and I try to suck every day dry and live it to the fullest and build up uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ and live for others as a servant of God and I do it imperfectly but that's what I'm striving for. But life is short, and we know, of course, the story of Casey Barnell, who died in Colorado, standing up for Jesus. You know, the newspapers reported it, saying that the, that the gunman said, who believes in God? That's not what he said. What he said is, who believes in Jesus Christ? The newspapers don't even want to name the name of Jesus. But, but they, he said, who believes in Jesus Christ? And she stood up and said, I do, and so should you. And he killed her for standing up. What a glorious way to go. 
from what I understand from people that are uh, in Calvary Chapels in Colorado, 500 students came to Christ uh, as a result of the memorial service. We have people, and I just found out from a brother who was watching this memorial service on TV that people, uh, uh, high schoolers out in Hanalei, got down on their knees and received Jesus in front of the TV during the, the presentation of the gospel during that funeral. But life is short. There was a, a friend that came. We were doing a car wash yesterday with the high schoolers. I, I just have to say our high schoolers are stellar. We've got some wonderful high schoolers in our church. We are so blessed and we love you and are thank God, thank God for, for, for them and we need to keep praying for them. The youth group is growing and God is blessing. But as we were there washing cars, a gentleman came and he had a motorcycle. I was surprised he let us wash it, but we washed his motorcycle and that was a Harley. And uh, in the course of washing it and talking to him afterwards, he, he began to share about the death of his uncle. His, he uh, capsized with his uncles and their boat was capsized outside the breakwater and uh, for four hours they struggled uh, for life in the night. And his 69-year-old uncle died in that, uh, in that accident. And as I thought, I prayed for this friend. He's, uh, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but I prayed for him and we had a nice time of fellowship. And, uh, and I thought to myself, life is short. And there's just this burning passion in me this morning that and that Jesus is coming soon and there is not time to waste. There is not a conversation to waste. We can't waste our lives on this world and on accumulating things and living for things that are so temporary and so valueless in the larger scheme of things. And so I'm imploring you, I'm exhorting you to realize that Jesus is coming soon. Either He's coming for us or we're going to Him, but it's going to happen very soon. And I... I'm fully aware as I watch friends die and as I see people lose loved ones that, that it could be that, uh, that some of us uh, may not even be here in a year. And I want you to know I love you. And I know that Jesus loves you. And He wants you to live for eternal things. Please, live for the eternal purposes of God. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that really counts. And so John says, having said that, he begins to express who these messengers are and, and how they are relating this message of the gospel of Revelation. And he tells us that he made it known by sending an angel. We don't know who this angel is, but it was, might have been Gabriel, it might have been another angel, but he says that he's sending an angel and he sent that angel to his servant, John. Now we know that this is the Apostle John, the writer of the gospel, the writer of, uh, of 1 John. And John describes himself in this passage as a servant. I, I love how John views himself. Servant in the Greek means doulos. It actually means a bondservant. A bondservant was a person who, uh, in the course of their servitude for a master after a period of seven years, would be freed. That was the law in Israel, that there was a, a freedom uh, from captivity for any slave after a seven-year period. But the servant, if they were really enjoying serving that master and their life was good and they, and they thought, you know, I don't want to leave you. I love you. I love your family. I love serving you. My family loves serving you. That servant, by choice, of his volitional choice and will, could become that master's permanent, forever bond servant. And the sign was uh, putting of their ear on the doorpost. It sounds a little gruesome, but we pierce our ears, so don't, don't get too squeamish on me. They put their ear on the door and they put an all through it. And that was the sign that that person had become a permanent bond slave by choice of a very loving and wonderful master. And so John, in the same way, refers to himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. 
And even Jesus himself, if you recall in Mark 10:45, he says, "Look, I didn't come to, to be served. That's not why I came." Jesus himself did not come to be served, but he said, I've come to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. And I thought to myself, what kind of a servant am I? Am I really reflecting this kind of a lifestyle of Jesus? Completely other-centered. But if you're an authentic follower of Christ, then you too are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's not your life. It's not your choice. It's not your destiny. It's God. It's Jesus. It's their purposes, their will. And so that's the life of a bondservant. And John calls himself a servant, a bondslave of Jesus Christ. He also says that he's an eyewitness. He says, I'm the one who testifies in verse 2 to everything that he saw. So everything that he saw, he's giving testimony to. An eyewitness. And the first thing he's an eyewitness of is the Word of God. Now, I think that this is referring, of course, to the entirety of the revelation of God throughout the ages. But I think in particular, it's the revelation of Christ. If you recall, John is the one that wrote in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, that Jesus is identified as the Word. He came in the flesh. This Word dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And so, the Word of God is Christ. His entire ministry, everything about Him. His revelation of Himself in the flesh. But then John says, it's not just the Word of God that he is a witness to, but also to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This word testimony comes, uh, is translated in our, in our English as martyr. Someone who's willing to die for their faith in order to communicate the truth. And so Jesus is such a witness, such a martyr. In fact, He's really the first martyr of the church the first martyr of the gospel. And so Jesus comes and he witnesses and testifies and he did that through his entire earthly ministry and John says, I am a witness. Do you remember in 1 John what he says? All these things that I've seen, everything we've handled and touched and we've examined it. What that word means is that I have looked at this closely. I have studied this and and turned this in my mind and I've examined every bit of the Old Testament and the ministry and teaching of Christ and his testimony and I am standing to say that it is true and what I'm writing to you is true. And so John is a witness, an eyewitness of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, really not John, but God himself through Christ, that there is a blessing associated with this book. This is really important. And I think, you know why I think that God has a blessing attached to the book of Revelation? Because he knew it would be the one book that would be the the, the least read, the most ignored. A lot of people are afraid of the book of Revelation. It's full of enigmas. It's full of imagery that we don't quite comprehend. And there's so many differing opinions on how it's to be interpreted. And the result is is that many of us have closed the book of Revelation. And I I know pastors that don't ever preach on Revelation. And their their thinking is is that that's going to happen one way or another. That We're all going to the same place. Who cares? Let's get busy about this stuff. But I think in reality, the Bible says that it is to be preached. It is to be taught. It is to be read and understood by the church because God gave it to us because He knew we needed it. There are no you know, kind of uh, addendums to the Bible, that things that are kind of secondary or unnecessary. So God says, I am going to put a special blessing on the people who will take the time to read and to study and to interpret the book of Revelation. And so if you look in uh, verse 3, he said, blessed is the one who reads it. 
the read, reads these words, and actually it's in the singular. Blessed is the one. He's talking about a singular individual who reads it. And it's talking about someone like myself or a leader in the church getting up and reading the book of Revelation to a congregation. That's the uh, grammatical phrase here in the Greek. It's a singular person reading it to a group of people. And then it says, blessed are those who hear it. Plural. The people of the congregation, if you're hearing it, you're going to be blessed. The word blessed means how happy. How full of joy and purpose and meaning the life of a person will be who takes time to read and to study and to hear and to put into practice the book of Revelation, which is the last part of this blessing. The third blessing are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. So this goes back to a very basic principle in Scripture, and that's that it's not good enough just to read the Bible. And it's not even good enough to hear the Word of God taught on a Sunday morning. But the Bible says if you truly want to be blessed, you must put the Word of God into practice. Now, there are Christians all over the world, some meeting right now in churches across the nation, who know the Word, who have read it. They've been Christians for years. They've been under fabulous teaching for years. And yet they fail to apply Scripture to their life. They become calloused to disobedience and to sin. And they've come to that conclusion that I know it's not right, I'm uncomfortable with it, but I'm, it's getting more comfortable by the day to be able to claim the name of Christ and yet live in disobedience to Christ. So the blessing is not for a person who lives that kind of life. But the blessing that God will confer and give to a believer is the one who reads it, who hears it, and then puts it into practice immediately. And you know, if you've been here for any length of time, even a couple of Sundays, you know that I place a great emphasis on the study of Scripture, that every believer in here needs to be daily in the Word of God, studying Meditating, worshiping, seeking God. It's a very private thing. It's the thing that many people don't even talk about. But if we're to have genuine fellowship, then we need to be talking about what Jesus is teaching us. We need to be edifying and equipping and training one another. You don't have to have a position to do that. All you have to do is be a growing believer. You see, God wants you to be like a fountain, a gushing fountain. He wants you splashing everybody around you. He's not interested in just filling you up and, oh, I feel so in love with Jesus. I just am so full. Oh, Lord, I love you. And we keep it to ourselves. No. See, Jesus wants to fill you for a very specific purpose and that's that you would gush. You would like splatter on people around you. But when my kids are taking a bath and I'm in there, you know, cleaning them up and they start kicking, I invariably get wet. And I'm saying, please don't do that. Please don't get me wet. But they get me wet because that tub is full. And they're kids and they're having fun. And as Christians, it's the same thing as that as we are in the presence of God and, and being filled and reading and studying and applying the scripture, you will overflow. There's no question. Christians dry out when they're not in the presence of God. But if you are in the presence of God, you are going to be a gushing stream, an overflowing, spilling over fountain of life for people around you. And so the blessing is for those who read it and hear it and then finally apply it. 
James tells us that we're not to be merely hearers of the word, but we are to do the word, not deceiving ourselves. And interestingly, all three of these participles are in the present tense. The the reading and hearing, it means keep on reading it, keep on hearing it, keep on obeying it. Every day, moment by moment. And then he tells us why. Because the time is near. Again, he tells us the time is near. This word time, there are three words in the Greek for time. One is chronos. Chronos means kind of time in general. Not any particular time, just the, the concept of time. And then there's aura, which has to do with a very specific time. That's like 12.30 or 2 o'clock, a meeting that you're going to have. That's aura. And then there's, there's uh, kairos, which is the time that, that this passage talks about. It refers to a period of time, a, 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 a time that we, hasn't begun yet, but when it begins, we'll know it. It's going to happen. It's a period of time that is going to take place, but we don't know when that time is. We don't know the exact time or the hour And we know it's not just time in general, very fluid, but there is a a very specific period of time that uh, that is coming. And so that's what he says. The time is coming. uh, The time is near. And so as Christians, we need to forsake the lifestyle of thinking that Jesus is somewhere off in the by and by and live our lives consumed with this world. And I've kind of already shared this, but please don't waste your life on the paltry, miserable things that this world has to offer in comparison with what's coming in the kingdom to come. And so John opens this message with a greeting. And he says, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So the recipients of this letter were actual, actually seven churches that existed at that time. The number seven is significant in the book of Revelation. I don't want to talk about that much now. But suffice it to say that there's 54 references to the number seven. Whenever you see anything in the scripture that's repeated, it's important. And 54 is pretty important. But what it means is completion, perfection. It doesn't mean always the actual number seven, but it has to do with perfection, the fullness of whatever it is that Jesus is referring to. And so he says he's writing this letter to seven churches. Now, there were, there were many more churches and many more prominent churches than the seven churches we're going to look in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the weeks ahead. But John specifically selects these churches. And there are three possible reasons why, and I'll share them with you now. One is that they're actual historic churches in Asia Minor. Now, we know that to be a fact. The other possibility is that these are seven historic periods throughout history where the church was living the life of a certain type of church and then in another period of history, another church and another period, another church, and on we go until the time that we're in now. And then the third possibility is that it's seven typical types of churches today. I think all of these are probably correct. I definitely think the first and the third are correct. Whether the middle one about seven historic periods is correct or not, it doesn't really make any difference. But John writes through the inspiration of God, through Christ, through this angel, to us about these seven churches. And we're going to learn an awful lot about what kind of people we need to be as we study that book. So he opens up with the recipients and then he says the very first thing that comes out of his mouth to the church is grace and peace. These are the beautiful twin sisters of the New Testament. In 13 New Testament books out of the 26, they open with this brief phrase, grace and peace. Now grace means receiving the unmerited favor of God. In fact, some have said it's not just the unmerited favor, but it's, it's God's favor in spite of demerit. We weren't on an even playing field 
and God came to us and blessed us, we were in the negative territory. We were way deep, 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 deep in the red. And in spite of that, the Lord Jesus made possible your reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. And the result is, is that you have a restored relationship and it's not based on anything about you. It has nothing to do with you. It's God's sovereign choice. And you know what comes for a Christian who actually grasps the true meaning of grace? That man or that woman will be a person of absolute peace. They'll be at peace when they're walking with the Lord real strong. They'll be at peace when discouragement comes. They'll be at peace even when they stumble and fall and repent and confess their sin because they know that God is faithful and just to forgive sin. They are at absolute peace. You know, you can't flip it around. You can't have peace before you have a right relationship with God. But if you have a genuinely right, restored relationship with Jesus Christ, you can have peace that the world has no concept of. And if, uh, the peace that I'm talking about is an inner rest that all is well. Though the world is crumbling, though, though people are in, in power that I might not be particularly thrilled about, though I may see and hear of tra- tragedy all over the world, I look at all that and I'm at total peace because my hope is not here but in Jesus Christ and the grace that he's already revealed. This peace and grace come from God. As we find in this passage, it says from him, referring to God who is and who was and who is to come. It's just concentrating on the eternal nature of God. He's the great I am. There's no beginning. There's no end to him. He's forever and we're going to be forever too. In fact, we already are forever people. Once you were conceived, you became a forever person. And if you're a believer, you're forever with him. And so we find that we're with Jesus and with God and God, the Eternal One, gives us this grace and peace. And then it says, from the seven spirits. Now, there's a a lot of discussion about what this means, but I don't have any question that it refers to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Again, the the number seven is the perfection of whatever it is, the fullness of whatever it is. So the seven spirits refers to Jesus Christ himself. And um, if you want to flip over to the book of Isaiah, keep your finger in Revelation Isaiah chapter 11, we'll read a passage that may very well be referring to the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. In verse 1 it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Who is he talking about? Jesus. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. If you look at that and include the Spirit of the Lord, you've got seven dimensions or seven characteristics of the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so John is referring to the Holy Spirit and it becomes especially evident because then we find not only is God mentioned and the Holy Spirit uh, that stands before his throne, but now we have this grace and peace coming from Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has got three characteristics or qualities about his life that are mentioned here. And we'll touch on these briefly. First of all, he's called the faithful witness. He's a faithful witness. Again, this is somebody who dies for their faith. Someone who is a a witness of something. And in this case, Jesus was a witness of God. Now, do you remember when Philip came to Jesus and said, Oh, Jesus, we've been with you for so long, but we we want to see the Father. Could you show us the Father? If you could show us the Father, we will be on board with this train the whole way. And almost in a, in a grieving way, Jesus says, Philip, don't you see? Don't you understand? I've been with you all this time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What he's trying to say is that, Philip, I am just like the Father. I am the Father. I am the great I am. 
Do you know that as a witness, Jesus came primarily to reveal the Father? We learned that in the book of John. That was his objective. It wasn't really to draw attention to himself, although he certainly did that as a result of what he accomplished. But his primary objective was to reveal the Father. He was able to do it because he was a perfect representative of the Father. In every aspect, he had the Father's heart. Do you remember how I've said again and again that Jesus did nothing on his own? He didn't speak a word on his own. He didn't commit any kind of act on his own, but he did everything and said only those things that the Father gave him to say and to do. Now, do you know as believers that Jesus has called you to be a martyr, a witness of the Father? Do you realize that one of God's primary objectives for you and for me as a believer is to conform you and and me to the image of Jesus Christ? We know that as Christians. If you've been a Christian any period of time, you know that's that's one of God's premier objectives for your life is that you would be like Jesus Christ. But a lot of people are thinking, oh, I want to be like Jesus because I just... Well, why do I want to... I'm not quite sure, but it sure makes me feel good inside. You know, and I want to be like him because that's what he wants. But you know, there's, a, there's another objective. There's something much greater and much more important about this than that end result. And that's that you would be a representative of Jesus Christ, just as Christ was a representative of the Father. And what that means is that as Jesus is conforming you to his image and the Holy Spirit is doing that powerful work, what God wants you to be able to do is he wants you to be living in the world in such a way that when people see you, they say... So that's what God is like. But that's God's objective for you, is that he wants you to be his representative so that when people come around you, they say, oh my, if that's what Jesus is like, if you're anything like what Jesus is like, I want Jesus. Unfortunately, many people are the opposite. They say, if that's what Jesus is like, I don't want any part of him at all. They see hypocrisy. Do you realize the high calling that you have? You are to love as Christ loved. You are to serve as Christ served. You are to speak and to live as he did so that when people see you, they are seeing an accurate representation of the witness of Jesus Christ. That is a calling that you can't possibly match up to, which means that you might have to depend on God a little. You might need to actually be empowered by his spirit to be able to accomplish such a thing. You might need to be dependent on God. That would be awful, wouldn't it? And so Jesus is a faithful witness and he calls us as well to be faithful witnesses. And he says he's the firstborn from the dead, which talks of his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and then of course the promise and the hope of glory that we have as well. And then he finishes up by talking about the centrality of Christ. He goes into a doxology, which is almost like a hymn. And John gets a little excited. Anybody ever get a little excited when they're worshiping God? Sometimes, I, I've said this before, but I kind of feel like doing a little dance up here and a jig, but I don't want to distract anyone, so I kind of contain myself. But in my heart, I'm just like, oh, is there anything better than being in the house of the Lord with brothers and sisters who love Jesus? There's nothing like it. And so John gets a little excited as this vision comes, and he begins to give glory and praise and acknowledgement and honor and worship to the one who deserves it most. So he talks about the centrality of Christ in the in that little paragraph, uh, last part of verse 5, he says, to him who loves us. This is in the present tense. It means that he, he keeps on loving us. It's not just past tense. Now, that's true. For God so loved in the past tense the world that he gave his one and only son. But Jesus doesn't just love you in the past. He loves you now. Right at this moment, I, some of you may feel like you're a million miles away from God. Some of you have maybe sin in your life and it's, it's broken your relationship with the Lord Jesus. But I want you to know that right now, right at this moment, 
you are precious to God and that He is loving you and wooing you even right now into a more intimate walk with Him. So He loved us or loves us and He has freed us. This word freed, it's in the past tense and it's through His blood. It means that the penalty of sin that we all had on our shoulders that we, we really deserve, there's no question, Jesus says that He by His blood has freed you once and for all. You are free. You are absolutely free. Forever. You have a clear conscience. And God says, keep moving in that direction with that clear conscience. Paul says, he says, I I strive always to have a clear conscience before God and man. Do you know how precious it is to go to sleep at night and have nothing on your mind except Jesus? To have no worry about somebody finding something out or, or being discovered or anything like that? What a pleasure to have the peace of God that comes from His grace and the peace of God that comes from a clear conscience. That's the peace that Jesus wants for us and He freed us to do it. And I I want to encourage you. I know that we have a lot of new believers in our church and I praise God for you. You're growing like weeds. It's just so exciting. I mean, many of you are just exploding in your Christian life because you're, you're spending time with them. It makes a difference. And as you're doing that... I'm seeing people freed from bondages, from life-dominating sins, from drugs and alcohol and lust and bitternesses of the past. And God's purpose for you is not only to free you from those things in the past, but there's some things that maybe some of you need to be freed from today. And God says, I can do that, if you're willing, if you'll let me. And so Jesus freed us. And then it said that he made us to be a kingdom. This is in the singular. It's not that we are kings, although some translations have that in the Greek. It's actually in the singular. So we are a kingdom. It means that we as the people of God are a kingdom of God. Yes, we're on the earth. Yes, we're living under the the, uh, authority and rule of the nation and the government. But we are a separate kingdom. But not of this world. Jesus had to keep emphasizing that again and again. Is that I am not a king of this world. I am not interested in being a king of this world. And frankly, I'm not interested in being a, 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 a member of the kingdoms of this world myself. I am transferred into the kingdom of light out of the kingdom of darkness because of Christ. And so are you who believed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we are not of this world. We are aliens and strangers, sojourners, tent campers living in this world. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep our lives free of the burden of being complete earth dwellers. But we have a heavenly kingdom and you already from God's perspective, are in that kingdom and operating within that kingdom. And so he says that we are a kingdom and priests. And the purpose of a priest, of course, is to serve God. And the priest is plural. It means that we're all priests. Now, the the priest had a very specific purpose and role, and that was to reconcile people to God. The priest spoke to God in behalf of men, and then he spoke to men in behalf of God. Do you realize that that is your role? You are a priest. You've been given that designation by God Himself. That means that you are to be out there in the world reconciling His lost creation to Himself. Men and women that are precious to God. I couldn't help but think as I was in an airport in L.A. a couple weeks ago that uh, as I watched all these people go by, some were, some were beautiful people, some were not very beautiful people, some were very overweight, some looked like they were very almost too thin, some had abnormalities, some were of one color or another color, and I thought to myself, God opened my eyes and made me realize these are just shells. 
those souls in the, that body is eternal and precious and is going to one day, if we were to see the inner soul of that person in its glory, if that person is saved, we would fall down and worship. We would be so amazed. But because it comes in a body, in a shell that we put so much attention on, we discount people and we diminish the work of God in their life and we say, well, that person's not really that interesting to me to get to know. But Jesus says that you are a priest and that your job and my job is to reconcile men and women to God. What an honor. Holding one hand to the Father and one hand to a lost world and bringing that precious treasure to God that they might know Him. We're told that He's going to be coming with the clouds. He's going to return. When the angels uh, were with the disciples at the ascension of Christ, the, the disciples were kind of like, oh, there He goes. Oh, our Savior. We, three years plus the 40 days of ministry and they, they were losing in their minds their Savior. And so Jesus ascends, but the angels come and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you staring up in the clouds longingly as if the world has come to an end? The world hasn't come to an end. He's coming back. In the very same way that you see him go, he's going to return. What a promise. You know that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he promise and not fulfill? Does he speak and then not act? No. He will fulfill his promise to come back and when it happens, every eye will see him. You know, some people uh, say that every eye will see him because we're going to see it on CNN. (laughs) Well, that may be. We have the technology now today for that to occur. But to be honest with you, I don't think God needs CNN to have every eye see him. Every eye in some miraculous way will see the coming of Jesus Christ and they will mourn. The nations will mourn. When it talks about nations in the Bible, it's not referring to believers. It's talking about an unbelieving world. Some will mourn because they are going to repent. They are going to be struck in their heart by conviction. And they will actually repent. They'll be in the minority, but they will. there will be some who will repent. But there will also be the majority who will mourn out of grief because of the terror that awaits them. And they will not repent, even in spite of the coming punishment that awaits them. And they will mourn. But I have to say for the believer that we have nothing to fear because the Bible makes it clear that God will protect us from the coming wrath. And so my belief is that we'll be gone before this day even occurs. That we will be raptured and that we will be in His presence. And the word ends up with God declaring Himself to be the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8. Who is and who was and who is to come. Again, declaring his eternal nature. Now in chapter 22, Jesus is going to use these very same words about himself. If anybody ever has a doubt about the deity of Christ and the the fact that he's God, they've got a very difficult problem with the book of Revelation. Because God declares himself to be the great I am and then Jesus says, I'm the great I am. And either there's a great battle in heaven between two great I am's or also the same guy. And the scripture clearly teaches that we're looking at the very same person. And then he calls himself the Almighty. This is a little bit lost in our English translation, but what it means is the one who has a hand on everything and who has you in his hand. The Almighty. Completely protected, nothing to fear, every reason to hope, and a glorious future to look forward to. 
Now I just want to close by saying that there may be some of you today that have never met Christ. Some of you, when you talk about end times like this and the second coming of Christ, and, and granted, the, the, if you're not a believer, the scriptures and the book of Revelation is terrifying because what awaits this world is not going to be a pretty thing. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be bad. It's not God's will or purpose for the world. It's because of the hardness of heart of man that God will come in judgment. And I just want to ask, have you ever received Christ as your Savior? Have you ever made that decision to forever be the bondservant and the bondslave of Christ? Have you ever received the grace that John begins this letter with? That free gift, you can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't deserve it. It's free. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to do any certain thing to get yourself all ready for this coming of Christ or for His work in your life. All you have to do is do what I did many years ago is I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know it. I'm guilty and I'm struggling with condemnation. I'm struggling with the weight and the burden of my sin. I want a relationship with you but I know it's sin that's in the way and I can't get through to you. Will you forgive me of my sin and give me new life? God gives that to anyone who calls on Him. I also just want to address you as believers and I want to ask you, are you ready for Him? Are you really ready? Are you ready not just for His second coming but are you ready to go today? Are your relationships clear? Is your wife or your husband, are you at peace with one another? Have you given all that you can for the glory and the kingdom of God? Are you living as if you have no tomorrow? The Bible says that that is a wise way to live. I think it's an extremely wise way to live. It's how I try to live. And I want to encourage you, are you walking with the Lord? Are you walking in obedience to His word? Are you truly surrendered to His purposes? When people see you, do they say, there goes a Christ-like one. There goes a disciple of Jesus. She, she acts just like Jesus does. I can't believe it. I've never been in a church where people act like Jesus do. This is incredible. I want to be like Jesus. Is that the response that people have of you? Or privately do they talk and they say, you know, I'd kind of be interested in going to church, but, you know, Frank over here, he doesn't, in his business, I've seen what he does. I've, I've seen the things that he, the, the, the dishonesty. I've seen the failings in his own home. I've seen the contradiction. I've seen him swearing and yelling at his kids and berating people. I, I'm not interested in that kind of Christianity. You see, Jesus has a plan for you. You're a priest. And today I want to encourage you in the strongest of terms to fulfill your role as you submit and surrender your life to Christ. Live for things at last and you will be absolutely blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We give you glory and praise. Honor is yours, God. Magnify yourself in the most remarkable ways and help us to live for you, God, and to count this life as little in contrast to the life to come. Draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.